This episode of Madcap is brought to you by Ann Pizza. Voted DC's best pizza by Washington Post Express. Creating a new, unique experience around people, places, and pizza. Connecting a taste of the future with a feel for the familiar. And Pizza provides you with an energetic atmosphere where the interactive menu provides you with a personalized experience. Hey, even the vegan gets some love at Ann Pizza. No matter where you are in the D.C. area, trust, you are near an Ann Pizza. Check out a menu and find your neighborhood locations online at annpizza.com. Ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to listen to is an experiment in sound. Who are we here with? The Egyptian lover, baby. Yeah. And we're also surrounded by some other greats. Brian E. Jamie Jupiter. Uh, my name's Daniel Bloom, and we are Madcap. <laughs> Madcap, baby. First question is, so from Los Angeles. Yes. So in, in most detail you can, talk about the neighborhood you grew up in, everything. Oh, like, wow. Yeah. The neighborhood was bad. <laughs> On the regular, I didn't know this was un- you know, I didn't know this was not a normal day where you hear gunshots, screams, people getting robbed, sirens, police cars, fire trucks, ambulance. I didn't know that was that was not normal until I moved out and came back and spent the night <laughs> in LA again. Like, whoa, what's going on here? It's not like a war zone. And then I realized, wow, this is what I grew up with, and, and it became normal. Mm-hmm. And until I left and came back, so it was we- bad. South Central. Where'd you leave to go to? I actually left and went to the valley, which was like um, totally different. Totally different? Yeah, I mean, the first time I walked into a store in the valley, the lady said, hello, good morning, can I help you? They never said that to me in LA, ever. So I was like, who's she talking to? Somebody, somebody walked in as a friend? She's <laughs> actually talking to me like, hello, good morning, uh-huh. can I help you? I'm like, wow. <laughs> How long were you in the valley? Stay in the valley, I think about 15 years. 15 years? Yeah. Then I moved to Anaheim Hills after that. How old were you when you moved to the valley? Uh, I moved to the valley, I think I was 19, 20. Okay. And then I, when I got married, I moved to Anaheim Hills. So what were you, what were you doing when you were in the valley? Partying, living there. <laughs> Partying, living there. So what... Um, Wait, did you have a normal job? No. Records. Records? <laughs> did uh, what... What did your parents listen to? What kind of music? Yeah. Oh, wow. Everything. Um, Sam Cooke, Fats Domino, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, Rudy Ray Moore. I mean, I found that album one day. <laughs> you listen to that. Dolomite. Not Blowfly, but Dolomite. <laughs> um, I found that album. Like, whoa, what is this? It was a comedy album. <laughs> I found some Red Fox comedy albums. But um, the, the stuff I really dug was the Dean Martin album. And Sam Cooke, Otis Redding, stuff like that. There's an album by Dean Martin called The Door Still Opens My Heart. I used to just listen to the album from beginning to end. Crazy. And I used to listen to um, Sam, all the Sam Cooke stuff, all the Otis Redding stuff, and everything they had. I mean, that was just full of soul, and I didn't understand what he was saying at the time. But when I got older and listened to the songs again, I understood, like, wow. I used to listen to this when I was, like, fourth or fifth grade. And it blew me away. But then that's how I know how to talk to women, too. Because <laughs> I was using some of his lines on the women, and it worked like that. <laughs> what's, what's one particular line? 
stand by me? <laughs> you send me? Like, you send me? What are you talking about? Like, you just you, you, you got me going. <laughs> and it works. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. And then I found out that um, little Walter was actually my father's cousin. Okay. And little Walter um, had some hit records back in the day. Did you uh, did you play any instruments growing up? Didn't play any instruments, but my brother actually played instruments. He played saxophone, keyboards, and he actually kind of just taught me how to play by ear. When did you get your first set of turntables? I actually never had a set of turntables. Really? Really. <laughs> That's interesting. I had one turntable. It was a Sony, I think, and it didn't have a slip pad. It had a rubber mat, so I had to take the rubber mat off. Didn't know what a slip pad was, but I, I was making, making mixed button, um, pause button tapes. So I cut the Warner Brothers plastic sleeve, cut a hole in it so the record could slide on it, cut a cardboard on top, and that was my slip pad. I didn't even know what a slip pad was. It was just easier to, to cue the record up on the pause button. So when I was doing this, I didn't know that, that how, that's how DJs were doing it because I never saw it. And it was just easier for me to, to cue the record up. So when I went to an Uncle Jam Army dance, I actually got to meet the guys who were DJing. And when they were loading up the speakers, I went up behind one of their turntables and I touched it and said, wow, they got like this felt thing under the turntables. So I asked the guy, could I, could I buy one of these? Yeah, we only have two, we can't buy one. <laughs> so I'm like, wow. Then I felt the turntable and the, and the motor was really, really powerful. I'm like, wow, I could probably do some tricks on these. So the guy asked me, was I a DJ? I wasn't a DJ, but I'm like, yeah. And then years later, maybe two years later, they had a DJ contest. And um, I entered into the DJ contest. As soon as I got up there, I killed everybody. And nobody wanted to DJ after me. Because those turntables were so powerful. I mean, I could just create mixes in my mind and do it on the turntables. So they were just that powerful. What, what were you, what were you uh, spinning in that, in that contest? Um, they actually gave me the record because they wanted me to, not to, to win. Okay. And they gave me Jump to It by Aretha Franklin. Like, he gonna, it's going to be whack. But when I heard it in my headphones while I was queuing it up, the bar went maybe for four. I mean, the beats went from like four bars. Uh -huh. And in the beginning of it, it was acapella going, jump, jump, jump to it. I said, I got this. As long as I catch that beat before that, the music starts and start it over, and I can scratch it and jump. So I started doing the beat. You know, the beat's going boom. Yeah. And then I go, jump, jump, chicka, jump, 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 chicka, jump, boom, 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 boom. Jump, whip, jump, whip, chicka, chicka, jump, jump, boom. I just did that for like two minutes and everybody stopped dancing and walked up to the turntables and just was looking like, what the hell is he doing? He is killing it. And I was just doing the beats back and forth, making the beats longer. And, and the guy who actually ran Uncle Jam's Army ran to the turntables like, I never heard this version before. <laughs> he like, he's the only one that liked the record. Mm -hmm. He ran up like, whoa. So then another guy said, man, you are bad. What record do you want? And I told him, give me Time Time Club and It's Nasty by Grand Master Flash. And yellow. <laughs> so I put all the records up there. And I was going back and forth with all the records and mixing all of them in and scratching them in. And I put the instrumental of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde had a, a, a Tom Tom Club instrumental kind of mm -hmm. record beat. And I was scratching in two turntables, two, two, two turntables from Grand Master Flash. And the crowd was screaming and partying. And everybody's like, damn, they ain't never seen nothing like that before. But I thought it was normal. Because uh, I did that. I said, I didn't create this. I, uh -huh. it, just, it would just sound good. Okay. And they never heard it before, never seen it before. So I was a DJ in Uncle Jam's Army. I made the, the, made the cut. <laughs> That's why I, I wanted to know what your, I guess, what your expectations were before you walked on that stage. Did you, were you, um, did you expect the crowd to go as crazy as they did, or, or 
or was I guess it was just vindication? It, it was <clears throat> it was a reverse. Okay. When I asked the main DJ there, mm-hmm. I said, "Have you ever heard of um, this? Like when you take the cue it out loud?" Mm-hmm. I said, um, "They call it scratching." He was like, "Yeah, that's old." What is the DJ if you can't scratch? I said, "Well, it sounds pretty good." Because I heard Grandmaster Flash's record, and when he did it, they were saying scratch it or the record, so I knew that's what they call scratching. Mm-hmm. So when I asked him about it, he said it was old. I said, "Oh, that must have been an old record I got from Grandmaster Flash, so they don't even do it anymore." When I did it, the crowd reacted to it, so I'm like, I could do it all, baby, just like that. They still like this, so I started doing more, and gonna find out, he didn't know what he was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) How long did you prepare for this contest? Didn't prepare. Didn't prepare at all? Just came off the cuff? I knew that, I I knew I could do the record, Mm because I was cueing the record before the the pause button mixtape, so I knew I could handle the record. Okay. Now, on their turntables, it was too easy. It was like, wow. I can mix with my elbow, you know, spin it backwards faster. It was too easy. I mean, left and right hand was like, it was so easy. So as soon as I got up there, it was like, wow, I wish I had these turntables at home. So des- describe the entire L.A. scene in, in 73. <clears throat> 73? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> 73 was just, um, dang, what was out in 73? Yeah, we just we was, we was playing football in the street, <laughs> and I could run fast. I don't know what I could run faster than anybody on my block. So we just played football, and we need a touchdown. I mean, every play was a touchdown. Mm-hmm. I just saw the quarterback throw it as far as you can, high and far as you can. And so we had the ball just run full speed, pass everybody, and call the GB bomb, the Greg Broussard bomb, and I catch the ball every time. <laughs> I was taller and faster than everybody on the block, <laughs> but I couldn't play professional football because I had asthma. And back then, there was no spray for asthma or nothing like that. You had to go mm-hmm. actually to the hospital and get on the breathing machine. So I couldn't play any sports. So when did you know uh, you wanted music as a vocation? And how did the people around you respond to this? Well, when I did the, the Uncle Jam Army party, uh-huh. well, I was, I, first before that, I was selling mixtapes at my high school. Okay. So the three years before that, I was selling mixtapes. Which mixtape sold the most? My very first one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Because uh, Rappers of Light had just came out. This was in 79. Okay. And um, everybody wanted another Rappers of Light song, but there was no other Rappers of Light song. So I took Bounce Rock Skate Roll and rapped on top of it and actually did pause button mixtape instrumentals on it and broke it down more and more and more. And a true mixtape. Mixtape. <laughs> That's what it was, a mixtape. It was a cassette no tape. So it was version. pause button mixtape. Mix mixtape. Pause. You got what you got. Yeah. A mixtape. Right. So I was doing pause button breakdowns, and I, then I would transfer tape to tape, and I used my headphones as a microphone and just rap while I was transferring back and forth. That's old school. You used your headphones as a microphone. We couldn't afford a uh, we couldn't afford a microphone, and I accidentally plugged the headphone in the microphone jack, and I heard some feedback, and when I talked into it, it sounded like it was a cool effect. Most people don't even know you can do that. Right. But it does work the other way. It works. <laughs> and I was rapping it and my mother thought I was crazy. My brother was like, that sounds cool. <laughs> so I was like, and he was a musician, so I was like, okay, if he said it sounds cool, it sounds cool. So I wrapped the whole thing through there. And when I went to school, I may have, probably had made 12 tapes. Like I dubbed 12 tapes. I sold the first 12 tapes like in two minutes. I, was, I wrote the, the, I was bused from the LA to the Valley. So on the bus, we had the boom box, we played the mixtape. I sold all of them before I got to school. <laughs> so I said, okay, I need to make more. So I made a lot of money. And then buying more tapes, selling more tapes, buying more tapes. So I think I was in school probably with 250 bucks in my pocket. Now, when you're in high school 
fucking it's 80, 79, 80. You're balling. Yeah, that's a lot. You can buy a car. <laughs> <laughs> what high school was it? That was uh, James Monroe High School in the San Fernando Valley. That's how I got, that's how I got hip to the valley. Like, I wanted to move out there one day. So what type of gear were you buying with this 250? I didn't buy no gear. <laughs> <laughs> I had that one Sony turntable, and it had two cassette decks, and I was good to go. Like some Kuji? Would you buy some, something fresh? <laughs> I mean, that wasn't Converse All-Stars. Okay. <laughs> I know about every color. But the most thing I was doing was just buying more records. So every time I, I did something, I'd buy more records, buy more cassettes, bought better cassettes, better quality cassettes, and I bought a better tape machine. So that was just like my business. So I had a ton of blank cassettes, and all that did was generate more money and more money and more money. Pretty soon, I went to the record store, and I looked up to buy another record, and I had every single record that was in the record store. I'm like, wow, there's nothing new. So I said, when the new stuff come out, she said, well, we got some coming in tomorrow. I go on the next day, say, it's new Shalomar. So I buy it, put it on the mixtape. <laughs> Which record store was really like your haven? Uh, it was one on um, Slauson Avenue and Central called um, Slauson Farms. They still in business? Nah. And it was, a little, it was in a grocery store, but they had a little cubby hole. In a grocery store? <laughs> they had a little cubby hole that was cut out for records. So it was probably big as this table. And the wall was full of records back here. There were mm -hmm. records up here, 45s. And, and I went there, I just bought everything. And it was pretty much inner city records. So it was only soul and funk and stuff like that. Okay. One or two disco kind of things. Okay. So when did, when did Greg become Egyptian lover? I was always Egyptian lover. <laughs> okay. We grew up in the hood. Everybody had a gangster name. So they had guys named Knock You Out, you know, 22, because he carried around a 22. Sir. Serve feet because he'd kick your ass. Okay. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to be a gangster because I'm, I'm a, you know, I don't want to be fighting all the time. So I'm going to change, I'm going to just have you know, some kind of lover. And being in the hood in South Central, I wanted to get away. So I thought about it, the faraway places in Egypt. Mm -hmm. So I called myself Egyptian lover. What was your gangster name? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> he, he didn't grow up in LA. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a gangster name? Hustler Bo. There you go. He was a hustler. So have, have you ever performed in Egypt? Never. Never? Never even been there yet. Oh, man. Working on it. I'm, listen up, booking agents. Egyptian lover in Egypt. That'd be next level. Yeah. Uh, are you a fan of Steve Martin's King Tut? Oh, of course. Yeah? Yeah. I was wondering about that earlier. I mean, I love that, that. When I saw that, I already had the name. When I saw it, I'm like, oh, yeah. I was at school to order the next day. Did you ever put that on the mixtape? Nah. You couldn't do that back then. Because <laughs> there wasn't no, was no VCR. You rewind it and do it. You had to actually do it live. Yeah, but it was a record, too. That can, well, he cut a record. That kind of record wasn't at my record store. <laughs> you have to go out to the hood to get that record. So I know this question may be difficult, um, but if you could, I guess, compile into like 10 songs, uh, songs that like represent you in, in, the, in the genre that, that, that speaks most to you, what, mm -hmm. what would they be? Of, of all artists? Yes, yes. Oh, that's easy. Ten songs. Yes. Prince, Head. Prince, Irresistible Bitch. Prince, Less Work. Craftwork Numbers. Craftwork Tour de France. Craftwork Telephone Call. Prince, Lady Cab Driver. Planet Rock. Electric Kingdom. Scorpio by Grandma's Flash and the Furious Five. You got all of them? Murder Rock, um, and my favorite, favorite, favorite that where I got my breathing from mm -hmm. 
Everybody think it's Kraftwerk, but it's really from Prince. But through another group called Ebony Web, and the song's called Something About You. And if you listen to that song today, you'll swear that's me breathing on that record. <laughs> and I got it from them. Because they were trying to sound like Prince, and I was trying to sound like Prince. So when I heard that, I'm like, that's me right there. Did you have a chance to check out Kraftwerk while you were here at this festival? Man, somebody told me they was playing today, so I went to bed early last oh, night no. to see Kraftwerk today, and they're not even playing. That's that, that man. I wish I could have. We saw him twice uh, yesterday and the day before. Why you bragging? Huh? <laughs> I mean, interview over, man. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta brag, man. The same show, or did it do something different? Yes. Wow. It, yeah. And I, the second, I mean, we didn't stay for the third one. I mean, he was he was the reason I went because uh, he's the biggest Kraftwerk fan nice. <laughs> in this region, possibly. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, they def they definitely blew my mind. It also uh, reminded me that certain certain samples I didn't know were mm -hmm. uh, people had taken. Like I didn't know Jay Z Sunshine had come from these guys. Mm -hmm. And so, like, sort of things like that, it was just kind of kind of blew my mind. So um, there is a writer named George Plimpton. All right. And he has this quote uh, saying that every great artist secretly performs for an audience of one. All right. So as you as you've grown, uh, evolved, who's the one person besides self that you that you've kept in your mind? As, as well, everything. the one person is my number one fan and mm -hmm. my best friend, Jamie Jupiter. Wow. That's a good question. I never knew. I, I didn't expect that. Uh -huh. What's it like? What's it like to be alone as well? That is unbelievable it's an unbelievable journey i have the pleasure of knowing him when we were 17 years old <laughs> to now and he's always been there for me i went to the military and when i came back you know the, the, everything was just changed uh he had become this mega superstar uh in the hip-hop world as far as we know it at the time and uh, got a chance to tour around the world with him. Um, man, I, 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 it's incredible. I've been somewhere everywhere from China to Poland. Man, that's that's incredible. Um, uh, so, and I, I realized that I see people in the audience as I perform with them, uh, as a hype man, I see people in the audience and I see people they have this certain feeling that they get and it's the same feeling that I got and I recognize that and those people are enjoying and loving Egyptian lover just like I do. But uh, it's incredible. I, it's incredible for me. When, can you describe the first time you uh, you met him? Uh, well, actually a friend of ours uh, uh, was, was hiring Egypt for uh, DJ, a little a private party that we was having, a little private dance. And I uh, went to visit, and Egypt was doing something with these records, and I'd never seen that before. You know what I mean? DJing was was really only a chosen few, but it was no mega superstar DJ. It was none of that. Everybody was just trying to DJ just, just to play at a party. But when I saw this creativity, and I, it just took me by surprise, because I never saw this before. And I was like, oh. I like I like this. How, how how do you? Can you show me how to do this? I want to, you know. He's like, yeah. So I come over his house periodically, and he didn't have turntable. He had one, and borrow one from somewhere else. And 
then over a period of time, when when it got time for me to graduate, my mom bought me a set of turntables for my graduation present, and he just come over and 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 we do something. And he never had his own, but he'd come over and, and, and practice on mine or play on mine or whatever. And you know, wasn't practicing. We just challenged me to do a mix. He would create some, some crazy mix, and I do it in front of me like, damn. Yeah, I remember one time we did a we did a mix. We was on a bus stop, just sitting down, just like. Okay, make it do this, make it do that. Uh, okay, can you, I bet you can't make it do this, you know? And uh, it was one particular song, uh, Sticky Situation, and uh, uh, I think that was Tyrone Boss? Yeah, Sticky Situation. And uh, this one particular part when they say, you got, on that breakdown, right? So I was telling Egypt, okay, well you make it go like, you got, you got, you got, got. You know, and, and to do it on turntables requires some, Manipulation of the turntable and the mixer at the same time. You got to be good for that. I'm talking about good. <laughs> I mean, I know he was good, but not that good. Yeah, no, ain't nobody that good. That's pause. That's 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 edits. Right. That's tape edits. So what happens is this: Uncle Jam's Army has a dance, end of the summer dance, uh, and I'm getting ready to go to the Army in September. It's the end of the summer. I'm getting ready to go to the Army. All of a sudden, there's 10,000 party people at the LA Sports Arena, and sticky situation comes on. Immediately, I just stop, along with hundreds of other people. Just, just when Egypt came on stage, he became a different person. He come out on stage with a big old turban on, and you're like, okay, you got a show with this guy, you know. <laughs> And so we sitting there watching like every other aspiring DJ would do. And if they didn't, they lying. We sit up there and watch Egypt. And Egypt was getting down and, and I'll wait for the part to come. And he came on and he said, you got, you got, you got, got. I was like, oh, that fool did it. You the baddest in the world. You the baddest in the world. Without practice. You the baddest in the world. I have it created like, in my mind and do it at the party. In front of 10,000 people. Be away. That's a great story. <laughs> so, uh, thank you. Thank you. For, oh, yeah. No problem. Thank you for that. That was a hell of an anecdote. <laughs> it was. So, I guess when you're uh, during these powerful moments when you're on stage, do you ever close your eyes? Um, not really. Never close your eyes when you're making music at all? Mm. It's always like to ask artists what they see when they close their eyes. But never mind. <laughs> <laughs> eyelids, back of the eyelids. Understandably. So, so, take me through your creation process. Like, how do you when you when you have a deadline? How do you put yourself? Well, I never have a deadline because I have my own record label. And that's okay. why I got my own record label, so I wouldn't have a deadline. But what I'm feeling like, a creative person, I start off with a beat. So I make a nice beat. And then I'll put some effects on the beat, and then some strings or whatever, maybe a tiny bass line, and then I start writing the lyrics for it, and then I do the, the edits after. I do my edits like a pause button mixtape. Mm -hmm. What's the label called? Egyptian Empire Records. So what is, uh, what's the latest with the album 1984? I'm trying to get it out on 808, okay. August 8th. Okay. okay. So we're working on that right now. That's a good idea. I heard you rocking those 808 beats yesterday on stage. And I love it. The, the, the drum machine sounds like a record all by itself, so 
I just I stuck with it since day one. And I'm, I'm gonna stick with it to, uh, forever. So when you're when you're coming up, did, what sort of things did you do to, or did you try to uh, hide which records that you were spinning for, so other DJs couldn't see it? Yeah. Would you would you do to, to make sure they couldn't see it? Just give them an evil look. <laughs> I was always a big dude, so you know, just one little look from the hood, like and they walk away. Did you ever catch anybody taping your set? No, they didn't have that kind of oh yeah stuff back then. Very good point. So all right, so I want to know. Um, Wait a minute. Question. So how many copies of the same records do you go through? Or do you just have extra? <laughs> the records I have right now are the original records I played in the 80s. Okay. The same exact records. Okay. I have more at home of the same record, but these records I bring on the road with me are the same exact ones. So yesterday I was kind of worried because the sun was out, and I felt the record getting hot. So I made him stand between the sun and the record so the record would stay kind of cool. But I felt it kind of hot, so I have to hurry up and take it off and switch record to another record. Okay. Okay. So to uh, jump in a little bit, to... Woo the ladies. What does Egyptian lover play? Egypt, Egypt. Egypt, Egypt. A lot of breathing. <laughs> Talk about the creation of that. Of that. That, that I mean, that was it. I mean, um, when I was a kid, they had this record that was just nasty, to me, and I loved it. It was like, put your foot on a rock. And when I heard that, I was like, I love it. That's some nasty stuff. That's. So that was always in my rap. When I did my first rap, I, I did a little breathing on that. And then I heard Prince, um, the sexy dancer, he was breathing in that record. And then he came out with one, no, he actually made Soft and Wet, and he breathed in that one, that was his first one. And then he came out with Sexy Dancer, and he breathed all in that record. And then I heard Ebony Webb, Something About You, which was a copy of the song Head. And they was breathing in that one. I said, man, that's my style right there. And so I took it and um, kept doing my thing. And then I heard Kraftwerk do um, Tour de France. And they had more on the one, and it was like a, a funky, like a disco kind of breathing. And I was like, oh yeah, and I was going to the studio the next day. So I'm like, I gotta do something like that, but I'm gonna put it in reverse and forward. And I, and I kind of did it like that. So, so uh, thinking back throughout the entire career, what is one show that it wasn't necessarily your fault, one show that went completely wrong? Wow. I never had a show go completely wrong. Uh -huh. I'm always, I was with Uncle Jam's Army. Okay. And he taught me how to um, fix any problem quickly by doing the most obvious thing first. So I never had anything go wrong. I mean, if you're doing a party for people in the hood, 10,000 people, you can't have anything go wrong. If something go wrong, you gotta have a backup system and a backup to that backup system. So, like, if, if they start fighting, our, our plan was to take one of George Clinton records out and hurry up and put that on, put on, put on um, one nation of their groove or something like that. And the gangsters would actually stop fighting to start doing their dancing, throwing their gang signs up. It's crazy, but it works every single time. So that was like, whatever happens during the dance, this is our, our plan. Other than that, if I'm at a show, like we was at a show um, last month, and all of a sudden, the turntables just stopped working. Mm -hmm. But the power was on. So I'm like, okay, the power is on the turntables, but the sound cut off. I got like one second to figure out what's going on, so I immediately went to the 808 and just Push the play. So it was before the set was over, but they had an 808 that's going on. Like, what happened? The guy had hooked the turntables up through the Sparato box through the computer. The computer wasn't plugged in, so when the computer died, the turntables died. I don't use the computer. <laughs> I use straight analog turntables straight to the mixer, so that, that, that probably never happened. But I saw the power on, but it was no sound, so I went straight to the 808, and we finished the show with it like that, and then he figured out the problem. 
I got back on the turntables and we finished that show. Do you uh, do you have children? I have two stepdaughters and I raise five nephews and nieces. Do you have you uh, encouraged music? I try. The, you try? How's that going? Um, they didn't really have it. Okay. Okay. They think they have it, <laughs> but they don't have it. <laughs> so, uh, who is another question? Who is the one person, uh, dead or alive, famous, whose whose morals you value most? Wow. I really never cared about a celebrity's morals, you know, because I have my own, and, and that's that. Mm-hmm. So if the celebrity just doing his thing, he's just doing his thing. But I don't necessarily mean celebrity. I just mean like iconic figure. Wow, I would say Dean Martin. Okay. <laughs> All right. Me, he did what he wanted to do, and that was that was the end of it. I don't care what anybody thinks. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to do, and this, this is how it is. All right. And one of my last questions, since since we brought up Whisper in Your Ear, I want in detail. How is this made? (laughs) Whisper in your ear. Wow. I love you. (laughs) That song came up. Wow. Playing around. Playing around, I guess. Yeah, we we had just finished um, a fast, a fast song, and we were just playing around the piano, and um, we started understanding some like, let me whisper in your ear. I said, I'm gonna do a song like that. We kind of played around and did that, but we did. I cried night after night before that, so I already had that style of doing a slow ballad kind of rap song. But then I said, "Let me just do something I can have and play for some women in the car or something like that." Mm-hmm. So I did it, and it came out pretty good. And I was playing around with Jamie in the studio, and like he said, it was great. Like, All right, let's put it on the album then. I ain't, I ain't gonna have it just for. It. I had like a 30-minute instrumental version of it and all that kind of for the women and all that. I think it came from actually Purple Rain. When he was when he did the love scene with the instrumental music playing, mm-hmm. I said, I'm gonna give me I'm gonna do a song, thirty minutes, you know, just instrumental and I like that. And that's where it came from. Okay. And you said uh that El- settle voice on it, that was funny. But it worked out though. Yeah, at the end. <laughs> and, and you said shortly afterwards LL came out with his? After the first song, um I Cry Night After Night. That's okay. when um after that LL came out with his. Okay. Bobcat was actually the one who heard my song and went and did that one. I need love. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about integrity. Uh, one of our DJ friends was really jacked up that we were going to interview you. Yeah. And he was, um, he's, he respects what you have done so much because he said that you never switched your style up to kind of follow trends, and that's why you'll always be relevant. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's because I never called it a style. It's, it's Egyptian lover music. So if Egyptian lover is making music, that's his music. So if they called it a style at the time, then they called it a style. They called it electro hip hop or electro hop or old school, whatever they want to call it, but it's Egyptian lover style. So if anybody came out after me doing that style, it was Egyptian lover style. I did an interview way back in 84. They were saying, how do you feel about being the pioneer of the West Coast sound? I'm like, well, I don't think I'm the pioneer of the West Coast sound. I'm the I'm the creator of the Egyptian lover sound. So when Dr. Dre was singing his records and, and doing, you know, breathing on his, Dr. Dre, ah, ah, Dr. Dre, I said, that's the Egyptian lover sound. That's not the West Coast sound. And the, the, the interviewer looked at me like, really? I'm like, yeah. Because I, I know a bunch of guys in the West Coast that was doing raps at the time. They didn't have raps on the radio. Mm-hmm. But I know a lot of guys who had made, rec- who had made songs that they played at the clubs. Like, um... Disco Daddy was one of them. He never made, you know, a hit record, but 
he, he was one that had a West Coast sound. <laughs> and I considered that the West Coast sound. Ice-T was rapping at the time. He had a West Coast sound, but I had the Egyptian lover sound. Okay. Are there any um, peers of yours in the music business that you really respect? Like people who have inspired you for, for years? Oh, yeah. Well, definitely Prince and yeah. Kraftwerk. Yeah. Those are my main two. I get, I get all my inspirations and all the beginning of everything I did from Prince and Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk was definitely the beats, and Prince was definitely the lyrics. All right, and uh, my last question is, so we, we lace, of course, we lace these uh, these episodes with a lot of music. So one of yours <laughs> to play us out, what would that be? It would be uh, You're So Fine. Okay. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to talk with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. To all three of you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Could you give us, would you mind giving us, us a drop? We, we really rarely ever asked this, but we just felt like it was appropriate. It's Egyptian lover music. Yo, this is the Egyptian lover. You're checking out Madcap right here, right now. Baby, baby, baby. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Madcap is produced by Daniel Bloom, David Ross, Afim Shapiro, and Drew Snadeke. Snadeke moves up in the world. Our intern is Christy Newen, madcapdc.org, on Facebook and Twitter at MadcapDC. And your hot pink Ferrari car. I'd like to get to know you better. But you're already somebody's star. You're so fine.